for, for this session, what kind of democracy representative in direct or liberty? Uh, and it strikes me, you know, I've been on holiday for the last couple of weeks, we've had some time to reflect a little bit on the absolute maelstrom of the last, uh, well, certainly since uh, the term of the year. And really, it doesn't take a particularly advanced student of politics who have been sat in the House of Commons uh, press gallery as I've done week after week after week and hear and feel the absolute clash of uh, really the type of political system that we have had, that we've had for centuries, that we've been very, very slowly clashing with one that has come really taken root in 2016, when Lynn Fox stood at the dispatch box uh, of the House of Commons and he said that this, what happened, has happened in the House of Commons over the last uh, four or five months, uh, is a test, it is a test about who governs, is it Parliament or is it people, those were his words, which I think to previous generations of politicians, journalists, of those of us interested in politics would have struck, would have been remarkable, it would have struck us as remarkable, the answer would have been absolutely obvious, it is Parliament, it is always Parliament, Parliament as we are so often aware is sovereign, the fact that it is now contested tells us so much about the big problems that we are now having in our political system. And to unpack it all, we've got this stellar panel. Rather than introducing them all uh, at the start, I think we'll go uh, one by one. I think we're going to start with uh, Professor Meg Russell. Of course, Professor uh, Russell is a professor of British politics and comparative politics at University College of London and the director of the Constitution Unit and one of the co-sponsors of this. Meg. Thank you very much, Lewis. And it's a great pleasure for the Constitution Unit to be co-sponsors here. And it's a great pleasure for me to be one of the UK and Changing Europe's new fellows for the next three years, so I look forward to working with you lots more. Um, so in terms of what kind of democracy, the starting point, um, as Lewis has already referred to, is that Britain is fundamentally a parliamentary democracy, of course, not just in the sense that's commonplace around the rest of Europe, that the executive is responsible to parliament, but in a more unique sense, that the central principle of our constitution is the sovereignty of parliament. No institution has higher authority, and there's no written constitution. The principle of sovereignty means Parliament can make or unmake any law, including choosing to give its own power away. And on that basis, it legislated to hold the 2016 referendum. In considering the UK's membership of the EU, there are clearly two big questions. First, should we leave? And second, if we do, what form should our future relationship with the EU take? The first of these questions wasn't formally debated in Parliament at the time of the decision to hold a referendum, but it was in effect delegated by Parliament to that referendum. The second question wasn't debated in Parliament at the time either, partly as a result. It also wasn't fully explored during the referendum campaign, which focused on the first question. But given the referendum result, the second question was in effect given back to Parliament. These circumstances were notably different to previous, less controversial referendums in the UK. On devolution in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland in the late 1990s, the proposition put in the referendum question was clearly supported by a parliamentary majority. The referendum on changing the voting system for the House of Commons in 2011, that wasn't necessarily the case, but the pr proposition had already been legislated for in detail. So in the event of a yes vote, that simply would have been put into effect. As Bernard Jenkins said this morning, the 2016 referendum was instead what his committee dubbed a bluff call referendum, putting a proposition to the public that Parliament didn't support and explicitly hadn't prepared for. 
The Independent Commission on Referendums, which was um, convened by the Constitution Unit, uh, which reported last year in Gisela, uh, was one of the members of the Commission, showed that the UK's pragmatic use of referendums was highly unusual. Such use is more normally specified in constitutions. Furthermore, if referendums are required, a required part of the constitutional reform process itself, which they very often are, this is generally a multi-stage process where Parliament also has to approve the change. Plus, because most other constitutions are written, the exact detail of the change would also often be set out clearly in advance in the form of a constitutional amendment. That is, before the referendum takes place, Parliament would have already addressed both key questions. It's ironic that that's the case in systems where Parliament is officially less central than it is in ours. Although our unwritten constitution means that referendums have no clear official status and Parliament is sovereign, the implicit logic has become, and as has become very visible over Brexit, that to appeal to the people is for Parliament to appeal to a higher authority. So although the Miller case reaffirmed parliamentary sovereignty after the referendum, requiring legislation to authorise the Article 50 trigger, the political response demonstrated MPs' belief that the referendum trumped their own personal wishes. Hence, the great majority voted for the trigger. This locked them in, necessarily, to finding a solution to the second question of how we leave. This is clearly a complex and multifaceted question which involves trade-offs and therefore needs careful deliberation. Parliament's a representative institution, but it's also a deliberative one, our central site of politics where negotiation and compromise usually takes place. So it should, in theory, be well suited to this task. But the two key questions of whether we leave and how are, of course, clearly inseparable. If we do leave, there has to be a means. By breaking the questions apart, a big part of the usual capacity for compromise in Parliament disappeared, as I'll come to. Amidst these tensions between the popular and the parliamentary will, a more familiar tension has also become very visible, that between the decision-making power of the executive and Parliament. Some have conventionally assumed that UK parliamentary sovereignty really means executive sovereignty, because the government can generally rely on a Commons majority underpinned by a cohesive party. In fact, as shown, for example, in my research on the legislative process, even in what we might call normal times, the executive is more dependent on Parliament and the need to compromise with Parliament than most people assume. But particularly since 2017, these have not been normal times. The usual building blocks of a parliamentary majority on the one hand and a cohesive governing party on the other are absent. The government isn't, isn't strong and doesn't have the usual authority of the backing of parliament. The resulting frustrations have led some to suggest, as Theresa May did in that infamous Downing Street statement in March, that the government is acting on the direct instruction of the people and that parliament is an obstacle. That's clearly not good for public faith in our elected parliament. It's created a political environment where talk of prorogation has become normalized in the name of the public will. And of course, the public's instruction was on the first question, not the second. But in seeking to address the second question of how we leave, Parliament has struggled to put aside the first. Among one group, mostly on the opposition benches, the narrowness of the referendum result meant there was some hope we could change our minds. 
But crucially for another group, mostly on the government benches, which is the obvious place to look for votes, for the government to look for votes, the fact that the first question had officially been answered and closed removed the need to compromise on the form of Brexit. There's a temptation to just sit it out and hope for a no deal by default. To put it mildly, in the shadow of the referendum result, Parliament's struggling to fulfill its deliberative function, which is raising questions of whether that deliberation should occur elsewhere. If the first question was put to the people in a referendum, should the second, more complex one, perhaps be put to them via the, deli the, the deliberative forum of a citizens' assembly? Could that help break our current impasse? I know that Lisa will go on to talk about citizens' assemblies and how they've been used successfully on other intractable questions. The Constitution Unit organized a citizens' assembly on Brexit in partnership with the UK and a changing Europe in 2017. A representative cross-section of British voters was found willing to compromise, with leavers and remainers coming together around a form of soft Brexit, and worth mentioning, ruling out no deal. A similar exercise could perhaps help now in healing divisions and leading to a decision, but there are two key caveats, even leaving aside the huge pressures of time. First, our Citizens' Assembly, on Brexit, our citizens assembly took Brexit as a given, just asking what form it should take. Three years on, Remainers, both inside the, outside the Assembly and among its members, would probably not see that as legitimate, so it would need to incorporate the leave-remain question too. Consequently, and as a more general consequence of how increasingly divided the electorate has become, achieving compromise could be even more challenging than in 2017. So returning to the central question, direct representative or deliberative democracy, the heart of British democracy will always be representative. That's not just because of our history. Even countries like Switzerland, which hold frequent referendums, take most of their decisions in Parliament. But we need to get these elements working together better. Referendums have a place, particularly in our unwritten constitution, of cementing and legitimizing major decisions. But pitting a referendum against Parliament is unusual internationally, and we've seen how it can inadvertently challenge the functioning of representative institutions. Crucially, while referendums can potentially solve yes-no questions, and so are necessarily polarizing devices, most policy questions are nuanced and require deliberation and a spirit of compromise. Most of the time, Parliament will be the appropriate place for such deliberation, but sometimes, not just on Brexit, it will struggle. So it seems increasingly clear that, I'm sure Lisa will explain, uh, building in citizens' views through deliberative forums can be a useful complement to our representative democracy to test considered public opinion, on the trade-offs and to help both inform and legitimate politicians' policy decisions. And in terms of listening to citizens, such forums are distinctly less destabilizing than referendums. Thank you very much, and can I just recommend Meg uh, as the ultimate peacemaker. Uh, when she chaired the uh, commission on the conduct of referendums, first of all, we managed to agree that it's called referendums, not referenda. 
but much more importantly, we managed to produce a report which Dominic Grief and I and representative of the SNP and we all agreed on the framework of that. So, you know, it is possible to reach consensus. Um, but I just... I, I want us to look at just a little bit further than just the referendum because what, what has happened... Uh, and the, the events which have led up to a, a stalemate of three years, where for three years we're, we're still talking about process. I mean, have you noticed? We're still not talking about substance, which really is quite extraordinary. And the situation which we've got at the moment is a set of divisions which have been in the coming for quite some time. What Brexit has done has simply flashed them out in, on neon lights on the screen. And you've now got a position where the leaders of the party are not in line with the majority view of their own MPs, and the MPs are not in line with the majority view of their voters in quite a number of cases, or their constituency parties. And what that means is the mechanisms by which you usually find consensus and bridge differences aren't there. Because where, where do you go to find that consensus? And I think what you see is a playing out of a tension where either the composition of the political parties changes or the label of the parties changes. And of course, we've seen something like that happening in Scotland. 2017 election in Scotland was between unionists and nationalists. And the nationalists were to the left of the Labour Party, have to all intent and purpose destroyed the Labour Party. And the unionists are the resurgence of the Conservatives. So, I think we're going through a massive, massive realignment of political <coughs> decision makings. And of course, the reason why, if you do that within a framework, or, or almost a straitjacket, which doesn't deliver the, the normal principles of democracy, you start to run into difficulties. And I'm, I'm you know, at, at the risk of someone saying, well, you, know, you chief Brexiteer, you would say this, the, the, the following three points I'm making uh, are contained in a book by a guy called Ivan Krastev, who runs a, uh, a think tank in Bulgaria, uh, Red House, in his book After Europe. And he makes the following three observations, which are terribly, I think are incredibly relevant. He said, if you, if you live in Greece, you can vote in a government, but of course the government won't make your policies. Because the policies, in terms of how much spending you've got and how much austerity you've got, <coughs> is made by the Troika's part of your single currency. He said, if you live in Hungary or Poland, you probably feel quite safe to vote for parties of the extreme because you go, oh, but Brussels will never let them get away with it. Uh, and on the, the third one, he makes the observation that we always used to accept that there were some people who didn't need to have a sense of belonging, identity, and community. They were the global travelers. This was Davos <coughs> in its extreme. And we accepted there were different kinds, whereas now we've got the thing that those who want to belong, want to have a sense of community, we kind of sneer at them and feel like saying, once you're a true progressive, you too will be a citizen of India. And that causes us problems in terms of our system of representation, consensus-seeking, and opinion-forming. Because whilst it is really nice to talk an academic discussion about right, direct, deliberative, representative, or what have you, there are always combinations thereof. And it is power politics which determines whether it works or not. 
And for any of you who are sitting here thinking that our solution is a written constitution, just enshrined things more, I just give you one word of warning. Do you remember when the Fixed Term Parliament Act was going to deliver us certainty? Uh, and uh, so we had, it is true, 2015, we had a very, very stable government because the Lib Dems made the decision of having a minister in most of the departments. So therefore, their, their, some servants were given clear instructions. Of course, they were punished in 2015 on the basis that you can't go in elections saying, you have no idea what we stopped from happening. Uh, the voters don't work that way. And then in 2017, Theresa May did something quite extraordinary, which if you go back to Hansard, nobody anticipated when we voted for the Fixed Term Parliament Act. She just appeared in number 10 and said, I'm going to have an election. And the comments went, they won. Okay, she's have one, hasn't she? So these, these are big power struggles. So, so make, no, make no mistake about this. And that... Now, we could go on being doom and gloom about all this, but how, how do we acknowledge that there's a deep fracture in the process? And how do we start? And I think the deep fracture in the process in the United Kingdom is actually in the relationships between the four components of the United Kingdom, and in particular about England. The evolution of power in England outside London is seriously unfinished business. And I think if you wanted to find one of the reasons uh, about uh, the, the Brexit vote, who speaks for England was a serious question. And if you think who speaks for England is a slightly whiffy right-wing sentence, I urge you to ask yourself just for a very brief moment, why is Scottish nationalism seen as left-wing and progressive and English nationalism is seen as slightly odd? Uh, and John Den, last time I was here, I was actually with John Denham, and, and I really recommend you look at the work he does at Winchester, because he looks at you know, who's that question of who speaks for England, and he notes that in the referendum, it was very interesting that we said better in in Scotland, better in in Wales, better in in Northern Ireland, but it was better in in Britain. It wasn't better in England. And why was that decision taken? But I would like to today sort of offer you a slight suggestion of how we might get out of this. Uh, back in 2015, Min Campbell, uh, Robert Salisbury and I went to see the Prime Minister. And this was in February, i.e. after Cameron had uh, called the referendum. But at that stage, he still assumed, and everybody assumed, that he would win it. And we asked him for permission to work with Cabinet Office to work as part of the Constitutional Reform Group about how we could end up with a a structure of redefining the power relationship between Westminster and the full component part and how we could deal with greater devolution. And I remember Cameron getting quite exercised and saying to me personally, you know, why, why do you care so much about this? And I said, well, you know, I grew up in federal structures. I have no fear of them, but they require certain checks and balances. But by the way, Prime Minister, whatever the outcome of the referendum, you will be the Prime Minister of a deeply fractured nation. So, hence my original observation, that the fractures and the reasons have been there quite some time before. So, since then, we've been continued to work on this, and uh, Lisa very kindly agreed to be a member of this. And the Constitution Reform Group, we've been working on this now for about four or five years. Uh, we've been working with the Welsh and the Scottish and the Northern Irish. Uh, Robert Lisbane introduced this as a bill in the House of Lords. 
Uh, and the key thing about that is it looks at a greater devolution. It actually makes, and the key sentence for me is, the most significant constitutional innovation in the bill is to present itself as an overarching constitutional enactment that expressly contemplates the use of hierarchy of acts of parliament and other instruments to supply lower level detail. In other words, everything that is not devolved must be treated as devolved and you decide what is done at the centre. We've been very deliberate in this to not get to the point where people go and say, oh, but this isn't pure federalism, and what are you going to do with this and going to do with that? So there are options in there. One of the options is what do you do with the House of Lords? Well, you could abolish it, you could reform it. What are you going to do with England? Do you have greater devolution or do you have an English parliament? These are the various options in there. We're quite clear that we haven't got the answer. Uh, but at the same time, we're also quite clear that this is a conversation which we really do need to address because we started devolution in 97, we evolved the powers, we not only did Labour stop with England, but then in 2010 we abolished regional government offices, we got rid of regional development agencies. The city deals, and I hope Lisa will say something about the relationship between town and cities, which is, gonna, is, is, is really quite fundamental and again we need to address they're not sufficient to address the problem. And the challenge for us at the end is, and this is the challenge we are, we're currently doing as we're doing greater uh, engagement, dry documents which structure power are essential, but at some stage you have to start talking to people about belonging, about community, about who is responsible for what. And I think we as the politicians, have seriously, seriously lost the ability to justify why they elect us and what they elect us for. Because the other thing about the three last three years has not just been about substance on, on, on uh, how we live rather than why we live. It's also been about the political parties talking about what they have to do to hold themselves together. And, and if the voters out there start to begin and one saying, hey, hey, what about me? You're supposed to exist for me. So what I recommend is twofold. One is this, read this, engage, submit to it. But the other thing is, if you look out of this window, you see this rather ghastly scaffolding down there. And the rest of the, of, of the Houses of Parliament is pretty much sort of, you know, shut down for rewiring. But if you approach it from the MOD building, you only <coughs> see the first clock face on the Elizabeth Tower which has been completely restored, it's been reduced to the blue and white, and it's nice. So, don't get down with doom and gloom. I think there are ways out, but the key thing is, we have a structural problem which we need to face up, and until we do, and unless we do, we will stay in that scaffolded state for just even longer. <coughs> Right, thank you very much. Um, I'll just check the microphones live by saying what an intelligent looking audience this is. And yes, I can see from the responses at the back it is. Um, I've been asked, given a particular brief, which to talk about representative government in the context of Parliament and Brexit. So, having given that brief, I'll uh, stick to it. So, it means saying uh, overlapping somewhat uh, with 
uh, Meg, so I may say some of the things uh, she said. I'll just try and say them slightly differently. Um, but what I want to call attention to is the challenge that faces Parliament. Now, if we look at parliamentary sovereignty, it's important to stress that what that tells us about is outputs and outputs only of the Queen in Parliament. It tells us nothing about process um, and certainly not about the relationship between the executive and Parliament. And it's really that I want to focus on. Uh, three years ago, I gave the Michael Ryan Memorial Lecture, and in that I argued that for Parliament, these were the best of times, these were the worst of times. They were the best of times in the relationship between Parliament and the Executive in terms of Parliament's capacity to affect uh, government. They were the worst of times in the relationship between Parliament and people and how the institution was seen. A couple of months ago, I gave the Bingham Lecture at Oxford, and there I argued that for Parliament... These were the worst of times. They're the worst of times in relation to the executive. They're worst of times in relation to uh, the public. People didn't really think very highly three years ago of MPs. They didn't particularly trust MPs. Now they don't trust the House of Commons. That is the essential difference. Um, now, let me just start with um, the Hansard Society's latest audit of uh, political engagement. One of the questions it Put, it found that 42% of those questioned agreed with the statement, many of the country's problems could be dealt with more effectively if the government didn't have to worry so much about votes in Parliament. 42%. Now, we don't know how many would have answered affirmatively if that question had been asked before, but it wasn't asked before because it would have seemed a ridiculous question to ask. That exemplifies the nature of uh, the change. So, just to give it a bit of context, we are a representative form of government, we, but we are a distinctive form in terms of the Westminster model. That is the product of history, it's the product of um, critical events uh, that have determined the relationship between the executive and parliament. You've got the 13th century, the actual development uh, of parliament, of the king decided he needed assent to raise taxes, so calling people together to give assent, it was reacting, it was an assent-giving body. Functions we ascribe to it developed over the next couple of hundred years, but it was a responsive body, the king coming forward with demands to which the parliament responded. You then had the Glorious Revolution of 1688. That was parliament asserting itself, but as an assent-giving body, it still looked to the king to be a real working king, a king who came forward with a policy. So Parliament wasn't trying to make policy, it was merely saying the King could not go round Parliament when bringing forward law. So institutionally, Parliament's very important, you cannot avoid it, you have to go through it. But it is the executive and the monarch bringing forward the policy. And the third critical event was the development of the franchise in the 19th century, the Reform Acts, that transformed um, our, our system. But it transformed the relationship. It didn't transfer power from monarch to parliament. It transferred power from monarch to ministers. And within the legislature, uh, established the primacy of the elected house. So our system, our representative system, has developed as the Westminster model to which um, the, the government is responsible. It brings forward measures of public policy to which parliament 
then responds. So the system is structured on responsible government and accountable government because party uh, forms government and it is then accountable at the next election for what it does. And in between elections, accountable to the people's representatives in parliament. So you have uh, a clear line of accountability. So it is responsible, responsible government, responsible parliament. Now, you start to undermine that if you start to go beyond it. So referendums challenge it because they are strictly irresponsible. Electors cannot be accountable to themselves. They cannot hold themselves responsible for the outcomes of a, a particular referendum. They have no responsibility for implementation. With our system, you have a body that is responsible both for bringing forward the policy, getting it approved, but also on the delivery of it as well. Once you separate the two, you have uh, uh, a problem. So you cannot hold, uh, people can hold themselves responsible for the outcome of a particular uh, decision in a referendum in the way that electors cannot hold to account a transient majority in the House of Commons. That is why you need the form of government that we have embodied uh, in the Westminster model. That is uh, challenged now, has been challenged in recent months uh, in two respects. Um, there's, there's talk of you know, taking back control. Well, you need to disaggregate what that refers to. One is in terms of actual uh, timetable. The other is in terms of resting control of policy. Now, the first, there's been an attempt by the Commons to grasp control of the timetable. In that sense, you can talk about the House of Commons taking back control, because historically it's relatively recent that the government enjoys precedence when it comes to uh, uh, timetabling of business in the House of Commons. There were changes late 19th century. But the precedence that the government currently enjoys is a result of the Balfour reforms of 1902. So you could say the Commons, to some extent, is taking back control of the timetable. But where you can't say it's taking back control is trying to wrest control of policy from government. And we've seen a tussle in that respect, for which there is uh, 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 not uh, a precedence, and for which it then becomes very difficult to hold um, those who are deciding to account. So what we're seeing at the moment is a challenge, at the very least, to our established form of representative government. It's not clear how that will be resolved, but there is a challenge. We need to be aware of those fundamental implications. It's not clear how those uh, will be resolved. But I want to identify the nature of the challenge within the concept of a representative form of government and the distinct form of representative <coughs> government that we have evolved over time, which is coherent and fundamentally adhere to that principle of accountability. Once we move away from it, there is a fundamental issue of electors and holding to account those responsible for outcomes. Outcomes are part of binding. The key issue is not that. It's how we get there. And that, I think, at the moment is the real challenge. Nandi, uh, Labour MP uh, for Wigan uh, from uh, 2010. <coughs>
and as someone who has, I think it's fair to say, been occupied a, a pretty important and central role in all of this in terms of as a barometer of where a certain type of Labour MP is at, and I think probably will continue to do so in the next few months as well, Lisa. Thank you. Um, so we've been thinking a lot about representative democracy here today, and actually we've been thinking a lot about representative democracy for the last three th few years. It sort of struck me as people were talking that I hadn't really given it a huge amount of thought, to be honest, until, um, until actually after I stood for Parliament um, and became a Member of Parliament. And in 2010, I was uh, the newly elected MP for Wigan, and I went down to Wigan Athletic to watch a football match with some friends. And one of them said to me, isn't it weird to think, as we looked over at the opposite stand, that most of those people voted for you? And I looked across at this sort of incredible sort of amount of people and thought, I mean, of course, they didn't vote for me. They voted for Labour and they voted for a set of ideas and for a manifesto and for all sorts of very complex reasons. But nevertheless, there were these people in their tens of thousands who had put a cross in a box next to my name, despite the fact that they'd never met me and that many of them never would. And it feels, I don't know how to describe it, it feels awesome in the very literal sense of the word. It almost feels overwhelming, actually, because you don't just take on a role as their representative, you don't just go down to Parliament and you know, try and do a good job and scrutinise and spend time on committees and cast votes. You're actually not just their vote, but you're their voice. And often in opposition, to be really honest, all you can give people is a voice. And by giving them a voice, you give them some sense of stake in the system and you give them some kind of dignity as well. But it's quite an awesome thing. And I think that's the first time that I really started to understand just quite how unusual representative democracy is. And what I've come to understand over the last few years, for me, this started when David Cameron called the referendum and I went back home um, to Wigan on the Friday night and did a, a meeting in the local Unite office with a group of trade unionists who were all uh, people who I'd fought alongside for almost everything that the Labour movement has ever won, uh, who were all um, absolutely certain that they wanted to leave the European Union and were completely at a loss as to understand why I was campaigning for Remain. And I started to think there's a problem here because I'd just left Westminster where it seemed absolutely obvious to every single one of my colleagues that we were going to win that referendum, that it was going to be a walk in the park, that there were going to be no problems. Very, very few people, some honourable exceptions, but very, very few people saw Brexit coming. How could it possibly be that in a representative democracy we had almost all of us come so unmoored from the people and the communities that we were supposed to represent that we didn't see what is basically a political earthquake that was about to happen? And this isn't just on Brexit, actually. After the vote to leave, a group of friends and I the academic Will Jennings and the data analyst Ian Warren got so fed up with hearing our towns described as these left-behind wastelands where people had so little left to lose that they had to go and vote to leave the European Union, too stupid to understand the question, too racist to care, that we decided to set up a think tank called Centre for Towns, which was about trying to get a much more systematic approach to what's happening in our towns onto the political agenda and start to explain some of this to a group of people who just clearly still, and still now, three years after the referendum, don't seem to understand 
what's just happened. And one of the key things for me that I've been trying to explain to people that I work alongside every day is that quite often, and in fact since I became a Member of Parliament, perhaps longer, the political debate that I'm involved with in Westminster just seems completely and utterly irrelevant to my constituents in Wigan. It's not that they're opposed to it, it just isn't relevant. It doesn't resonate with them and the realities of their lives. It seems to me that we've got a big problem, and this is the problem that in the last few years, populists of both left and right have moved into and have filled what is essentially a deeply, deeply dangerous vacuum. Because the argument that populists make isn't, um, is that the system is illegitimate. It's not just that people like me are illegitimate, that we don't properly represent you, that we're not like you, that we can't possibly know or understand the reality of your lives. It's that the whole system is illegitimate, that nobody should be able to make decisions on behalf of another. And that's why I think people like Nigel Farage get away with it. Because the, our response, on the left at least, tends to be, but look, he's not a man of the people. You know, He doesn't really drink real ale. He doesn't know what your life is like. But actually, those attacks on people's character, their background, their integrity, they don't work because the argument that he and many others on left and right are making is that the system itself is illegitimate. It's rotten and it's broken and it needs to be replaced. And this is an argument that largely I think they're winning. When I talk to people in my constituency, I felt the shift even in the last three or four years. And that comment about, you know, it used to be MPs that were considered illegitimate, now it's the House of Commons. It's not very often that I sit on panels like this and hear the same sort of language that we're hearing on the doorstep, but that is absolutely what we're hearing repeated back to us on the doorstep, and it's new. It's only in the last couple of years that we've started to hear it. People railing against Parliament. They used to use the language of MPs, now they use Parliament. And we're all, we're all in this system that will collapse and it will take us all down with it. That is what is at stake in the end. I think it's, can liberal democracy survive? And that is a genuine question. And one at this juncture that I genuinely don't know the answer to. But I do know that it matters. Because it's not just Parliament that is currently under attack. If you look from left to right, you will find political leaders of every political party on both the front and back benches engaged in this populist rhetoric, undermining the legitimacy of the judiciary, of the media, of civil servants. And there's a problem here because these things have grown up over hundreds of years in order to protect minority rights. That is absolutely essential in a liberal democracy. And there's more than that. Michael Walzer, the philosopher, puts it best. I think when he says, never think that the blood-dimmed tide is a threat only to immigrants and minorities. It is a threat to us all. We all need constitutional protection. We all need a centre that holds. And so what do we do about it? Well, I say that we adapt or we die. And these institutions that we've currently got that were built in a quiet past are just completely inadequate to the stormy present. And we've got to think seriously about how we reform this. This used to be the sort of thing that really excited academics. Now you'll find MPs around Parliament huddled in corners debating hotly how this happens. Not enough of us, that is true, not enough of us have woken up to the scale of the crisis, the tsunami that is coming our way. But it's why a group of us, cross-party, uh, myself, Stella Creasy, Caroline Lucas, Joe Swinson, Andrew Percy for the Tories, uh, um, and, and a host of SNP MPs as well, 
have been working together to try to establish citizens' assemblies for Brexit. Why? Because we need better democratic tools. And there are other democratic tools in our armory, but this one, I think, is uniquely important to this moment. These are groups of citizens who are chosen to be representative of the population as a whole, who are staffed by a secretariat whose job is to be independent, impartial, but to equip them and empower them with the knowledge that they need in order, in order to deliberate over controversial questions. It was tried in Ireland um, and Northern Ireland over issues as controversial as abortion and equal marriage. They make recommendations to Parliament. They don't replace Parliament. One of the common responses that we had from colleagues in Parliament who've been around a bit longer was, you know, there is such a thing as Parliament, as Citizens' Assemblies, Lisa and Stella, and it's called Parliament and it's your job. But I have to say this, if anyone thinks that Parliament is working you quite simply haven't been paying attention over the last few years. Because, you know, one of the things that struck me when I first got elected to Parliament was how little spaces, even physical spaces, there are for people to come together to actually thrash out issues and to find common ground. We stand in that very adversarial chamber and we scream at each other. We go into committee rooms, which are much better at trying to work together to find solutions. But in those committee rooms, we stand behind bars, barriers and shout at each other still. And since 24-hour news and social media, that's got worse. So now you find those rooms, like the chamber, are just full of MPs delivering their set pieces to camera, trying to deliver zingers to one another so that they can rack up the hits on Twitter and the likes on Facebook. We haven't got the spaces that we need. You know, Giesler said, look out the window at that building surrounded in scaffolding. I mean, this is a building that is riddled with asbestos, it's on the verge of collapse. It's an extreme fire hazard. And Chris Bryant told me yesterday that it's sinking into the mud. And yet the building is the best thing about the place. I mean, how can that be that we've allowed this, this system to outlive its usefulness without thinking how we adapt or die? And that's what citizens' assemblies do. They bring people together, unlike referendums, which divide people. They bring people together in a search for consensus and the common ground. And this matters. Why? Because Parliament is divided, because the public is divided. The, the geographer Danny Dorling did a piece of research a few years ago which showed that on almost every major values question, the public is divided and becoming more divided. And geographically, this division between towns and cities, I feel it all the time, the big urban centres and those areas outside, is growing and growing and growing, so that he found you have never been in human history less likely to live near someone who thinks differently to you. Now, that is a big problem because our political system, our representative democracy built on constituencies means that I hear one thing in Wigan and Stella hears something completely and utterly different in Walthamstow. So while in Walthamstow a second referendum seems inevitable, you put Remain on the ballot, it will win and this problem will be solved. In Wigan, that just seems absolutely, utterly absurd. And that that's why we need new tools, and God, do we need them. And I'll just finally say this, that we're going through one of those moments that Gramsci talked about, these kind of moments where the old is dying and the new is yet to be born. That settlement that has lasted, that political settlement that has lasted all of my life, I was born in 1979, has collapsed. The public won't accept it anymore, where representatives make decisions on people's behalves and hand them to them. Those decisions often remote and opaque, 
but nevertheless, if they're sound, they will stick. That settlement that says that we can concentrate wealth and opportunity in a few areas and bring the trickle-out effects to help bring up people at the bottom and drag some areas along in others' prosperous wake, all that has gone. And to be honest, I'm glad it's gone. But we're living through this, this moment where the old is gone, the new is yet to come, and we've got to think seriously about how we build it. Now, Gramsci said, in those moments, you get these morbid symptoms. And my God, we're living through some morbid symptoms, aren't we? This is a deeply unsettling moment in history. Every, our political culture feels like it's on the verge of collapse. Every single issue is a wedge issue. I was looking at Twitter before I came here. I don't know why I do it to myself, but there it was. And I was just, you know, fielding stuff from left and right with people goading each other to condemn every single thing and every single person that is currently acting in the political arena. We can't go on like this. The world is seen in terms of black and white. Issues are either right or they're wrong. And as a consequence, depending on which side you pick, everybody is either good or evil. We haven't just lost the ability to grapple with the complexity in the world. We've actually lost or started to lose the ability to understand one another. And this is really serious. I think, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to say to people in two very different parts of the country, we need to calm down, we need to think more rationally, we need to think more calmly, but actually say to you today that I think this is genuinely, genuinely an alarming moment. We've got to do things differently, and that's why I say we adapt or we die. see that. One of the things I've learned over the last few years, actually, is that leave or remain, and a third of my constituents voted remain, um, like me, and a third voted leave. But, you know, often families were split about that issue, but they're not clubbing each other over the breakfast table. They're largely getting on with it, and they'd quite like to see Parliament get on with it too. Now, of course, that means different things to different people, and it's more complicated than that, and that's the sort of ongoing conversation I've been having with them. But actually, if you look at what has happened since the referendum... 
it's not just that I think the public can detect that there was no real seriousness around trying to get this issue resolved. We, it happened at a time when the political parties had become very, very partisan in our rhetoric. So, you know, if you've spent your whole life saying you can't deal with a Tory, I'm never going to be friends with a Tory, the Tories are evil, how on earth are you then going to go and negotiate a withdrawal agreement and a trade deal with the Tories and then deliver it? And that is a problem, and that's not just a criticism of my party, that's a criticism of the Tory party and where they're headed to. But we've, we've vacated any kind of common ground and any search for the common ground at just the moment when it was most needed. Worse than that, we started to ape the language and the rhetoric of the far right. So a few years ago, I mean, I've always had BMP, EDL, whatever incarnation you like in Wigan since I was elected to grapple with and we fought them off for decades and we'll carry on fighting them off. We fought Tommy Robinson off the other day and we'll keep doing it because it's the right thing to do. But, you know, it doesn't really help because um, it, I'm now not just fighting that sort of language from the far right, I'm fighting it in Parliament too. When I walk into Parliament, I hear colleagues, friends of mine, screaming the words traitor and betrayal at one another, language that I only ever used to hear at far right rallies, the sort that you frequent nowadays in the name of journalism, I should say. But, <laughs> but, that, but, but, but we've done it to ourselves. And then we walk out of the gates and we get that language repeated back to us in the street and we're shocked. Why are we shocked? We set the tone, we set the culture, and we've just failed on every single measure to do that. Now, that's not for lack of good people in there trying, but we are not winning the battle, and we've got to do better. And that's every political party, including my own. But just quickly, I just... I, I just I mean, it does strike me, you might be afraid. Every stage of this I've grappled with my conscience because I've always had the view um, when we were running the referendum I thought we would lose it from that day that I stood in the Unite building in Wigan the week that Cameron called the referendum I thought we would lose and actually I thought I thought leave would get a bigger majority but I've always had the view that if we got a result from that referendum we had to try and respect it and deliver deliver Brexit now we got a result. I think I've honoured my side of the bargain. It takes huge political capital, especially in this um, current toxic, black and white, divided political arena, to go and sit with the prime, Tory Prime Minister and try to thrash out details of Brexit. We'd almost got there, and then she resigned. Now, you know, is there a prospect of doing that again? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I don't know, but I'll approach it in good faith. And actually, when I go home to Wigan, that is... Although it's, you know, the debate has become very polarised and there are people on each extreme that are very, very angry now, for most people, that is widely accepted. And whereas, although I deal with much more anger from the public now, whereas three years ago, um, it was relatively unusual for somebody to come up to me and say, look, you're doing a good job, keep going. Now, that is daily, in fact, happened on the train on the way here this morning. By the way, Rory Stewart came to Wigan during the leadership, uh, when he was in the leadership contest and got exactly the same response. People were coming up to him in the town centre saying, look, I'm glad you're trying, thank you for trying, we believe you, we respect you, keep going. I think there is a silent majority out there in this country who just want to see their politicians behave with some integrity and show some leadership. And you can make a case on either side of that remain, leave, divide, as long as you're doing it with seriousness and intelligence 
intent and integrity. And at the moment, they look to British politics and they just don't feel that we are. You know, we're trying to confer legitimacy on a new political settlement, whether that's the deal, whether that's remaining, whether that's leaving without a deal. You know, legitimacy is the thing that is being grappled with. And it's one that the representative system that we have doesn't seem to be able to confer as it stands. So, do you, what do you think? Is there anything, do you think, that now could confer that legitimacy? And indeed, are there any examples of other countries who have gone through this sort of constitutional moment like this in modern times? that might have been able to get itself out of it, either with constitutional innovation or whether it's with, or whatever, I don't know at this point. Well, Philip may have other ideas, but I think as I indicated in my remarks, we've managed to put ourselves in a pretty unique position yeah, by well, using a referendum yep. in this way. Um, I, I certainly, for the work that we did on the Independent Commission on Referendums, um, we didn't find a parallel to this. And the problem which the, 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 the commission did, as Gisela said, across all manner of divides, including herself and Dominic Grieve, who's about to arrive, I assume, um, reach consensus on was that it is a mistake to put a big question to a referendum without a prospectus for what the change will mean. And that's what Bernard Jenkin meant by the bluff call referendum, that there was very explicitly no preparation for the outcome that the Prime Minister didn't want. And that's landed us in a big lot of trouble. And I think that as I said, MPs have accepted that the, the referendum itself had legitimacy. And as Lisa said, a lot of people have compromised a long way. I mean, a lot of those people who voted for the trigger didn't want to Brexit. But they compromised by voting for the trigger. It's actually the people at the other end who've tended to be uncompromising. Yeah, of course. Of course. They would just see that as automatic. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. that's how the referendum is sold. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a problem. Yeah. But, I mean, I think in terms of, in terms of legitimacy, um, I do hold out some hope, although now we're in such a tight time corner for the kinds of proposals that, that Lisa advocates on citizens' assemblies, because those bring people together who do not bring baggage in terms of um, prior views, in terms of representative promises that they've made, and our... Isn't the problem with citizen assembly is it has no precedence in our constitutional That is a problem. And yep. so in yep. terms of conferring yep. legitimacy that I'm talking about, you know, you say to people, people understand what a referendum is, they understand what yep. an election is, and I'm interested in your views on, on how the fixed term parliament's act is screwing this up. Clearly elections an election could be a way of conferring some legitimacy. They know what an election is, they know what a referendum is. They don't have a bloody clue what a citizen assembly is. I think that's completely true. We can point to places like Ireland, but we don't have a background of them in this country. And so that is a risk. And I think there is also a risk that we are now so polarised that whatever the outcome of such an assembly is, the people whose position it does not support will denounce it as illegitimate um, straight away. So it's maybe a bit of a pipe dream. But one of the good things that those that citizens' assemblies do, among other things, you know, they, they offer... Uh, I mean, this was a... This was a position of Rory Stewart, actually, that he wanted, he wanted to hold one if he'd won the leadership contest. And I think that the reason that he wanted to do it was that he could see that it would give politicians a reason to compromise if they were asked to compromise by a representative group of citizens. It might be the thing that bashed heads together. And one of the nice things about citizens' assemblies is that those people who have sat on them, who are forced to consider difficult trade-offs 
actually come out with a huge amount more respect for politicians because they realize what a difficult job that is. <coughs> that is politics. You have to compromise. And you've got the problem of time because we've got a problem that's immediate. Um, and there is a problem in discussing constitutional reform almost as a displacement activity rather than getting on and solving the problem. And as you implied, the problem has to be resolved within the existing framework. And of course, MPs will respond, we've gotten a citizens' assembly, it's called the House of Commons. So you can have a problem with legitimacy in respect of the politicians. So we are in a bind. And it's completely predictable given the problem you've got with referendums. I mean, I've always argued on principle against uh, referendums. In effect, it's been borne out. And I'm, I'm not going to go around telling, I told you so, because if I did that, I'd have no time to do anything else um, on different things. Uh, and I used to get very annoyed with politicians who used to come up with me, oh, I so agree with you, I don't like referendums. But I think we should hold one on X. And that's why we end up with them, because it's resolving the issue that you feel most uh, remarkable about and ignore the wider constitutional implications. So we end up in a situation where you're offered a binary choice and my key point is then it's irresponsible. Electors can't hold themselves responsible for what they've uh, decided and they don't particularly want to. People we know from the surveys aren't particularly themselves involved in getting involved in politics. They want the others to do it. But once you've sort of whetted the appetite, given the meat, they generally are in favour of referendums. I mean, the proportion has declined. But they're still in favour of referendums, but not prepared to accept responsibility for implementing them. And the problem with the referendum is you know definitively how people have voted, but you don't know definitively why they voted. We get all these people who somehow know why 17.4 17 million voted. It's amazing how they can see into the minds of 17.4 million people. Um, all we can say definitively is how they voted, and that's the, that's the bind we find ourselves in. Did you think about any of these things? Did you think about, and I don't know, did you anticipate any of these problems coming down the line, or did you just think it would be quite straightforward? And I don't mean in terms of the implication no, no. of the, the, the policy, I don't mean in terms of the implication okay. of policy, no, I, mean, I just mean in terms of what we're talking the, about. The, 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 the problem is, politics is about trust, consensus, and power. And any of the structures which we put around it depend on the circumstances, the nature of the question, and the conditions under which you impose it. I wanted a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty on the simple basis that there was a significant shift of power and you would have had a very clear choice as to what a yes vote would have meant. A yes vote would have meant I agree to that change of power and I, I have a constitutional contract here which tells me how it's shifting and a no vote is I have the, 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 the status quo. I think there is a place for referendums in terms of when you actually change the relationship of power. The Welsh referendum on the last vote was one on a 0.7% majority with a, I think, was it 51% turnout? So, you know, they, they don't have to be contentious. Then you've got things which are deeply divisive issues or deeply moral questions. So in the United Kingdom, we didn't have a referendum on abortion, but unlike the United States, which did it judicially and therefore continues to have things, you know, it came in through a private member's bill. It, so, so it wasn't the government which was proposing. You had a process of finding things. So the, 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 the thing is we, we tend to get to one position and then sort of say, oh, oh, and by the way, the worst reason for calling a referendum, which was the reason for, for this one, and by the way, the same one, the reason for, for Wilson's, was because your own party was divided. So if you call a referendum because you can't get your own mates to agree with you, and then the public comes back and tells you something you'd expect you've got a problem. So let's come back to trust. 
The reason why I think uh, the, the citizens' assembly, whatever you call them, and that we've got a tradition or not, is we have to find a way which is fairly local, because anything which is beyond people's local communities, they're now no longer trust, which is a process they have faith in. And certainly if you do proper community politics, where you genuinely don't, don't have public meetings because you want people to agree with you, you have a sequence of public meetings where you have a sequence of evolving questions and you bring it forward, I think it is so crucial that unless we get it back to the grassroots so that when Lisa next time goes to the football stadium and she looks across there, she will have been through a process where even though half of them over there probably don't agree with you, but they think you've honestly tried in a process to find a common voice and you're only going to do that in your football stadium, you're not going to do it down here. Right, uh, we've got a little bit of time to take a few questions, so let's take at least three, I think. Gentlemen at the back is trying to agitate for a while. Is it? <coughs> Can you hear me? Hello? Hi. Yeah, um, my question is, <coughs> when asking my parents about um, Brexit and the EU, because they were the ones, I wasn't even born then, but I was asking what was it like when they were in the UK, and they says, well, we were asked to vote for the customs union. I says, what happened then? He says, well, we got the EU. I says, I don't understand. What's the difference? And then I started doing the research for the last few years, <coughs> and I learned about a guy, a gentleman who flagged this up in 1975. His name's Peter Shaw. And Peter Shaw actually was directing his conversation at uh, Ted Heath and saying, well, actually, how did we actually join the EU? It was actually treason. And no one's actually talking about this. If this is something really talking about democracy for the people, then where are all the politicians who have all the facts in front of them and they should be talking about this. But instead, what's happening is, with my taxes that I had to pay in January and then probably the end of this month, it's the life of Riley for all of them, every single one of them. So my question is, where is the discussion happening on the issues with regards to how we were meant to join the customs union for freer trade? And we ended up going from the Europe to the EU, which is highly corrupt, and how has the EU been funded for the last 50 years? It's been collecting colonial tax from Africa. So we shouldn't really even be in this prominent position, but why is no one actually talking about this? And one last thing, if we're really in a, yeah, if we're really in a democracy, then why is it every time there is a paedophile scandal pointed at parliament, it's shut down by the police? Thank you. I don't speak very well in public. I don't speak very well in public, so be excuse me. Meg Russell knows me, I don't. So if Parliament uh, is responsible for its own demise as a result of its own actions, it called a referendum and it's vulnerable. But therefore, it is, uh, if it's vulnerable, it's therefore um, self-harming. So therefore, that being the case, that they, if they can learn to tell the truth sometime in the future, they may get more trust. That's why I'm cutting out far too big an argument for me to put in words now, but I've written about this. And what I'm saying is, 
if, if, if Pomwood's sovereignty has got, to, it's got to prove itself, it's got to qualify that. It won't qualify it by continuing to tell lies, which is allowed to do in law. My Lord not mentioned, in fact, one of the acts that gives Pomwood sovereignty. He said that, he said that, uh, they, 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 they had, he said the words the event that um, the, the statute says that uh, the, the, the parties agreed not to not to let the monarch interfere in the courts. In actual fact, the statute's not written that way. It affects everybody, every citizen in the UK. I can enlarge this in probably so much, but it's far too complicated. But truth is sovereign to me, and those that don't believe in the truth, the truth therefore believe in untruths, and therefore in lack of trust. Be better. Good afternoon. Uh, my question is for Mrs. Stewart. You mentioned about um, the fact that it's time to talk uh, to people about the sense of belonging. What do you have to say to those 3.5 million citizens, uh, European citizens living in UK, having a sense of in and out? Thank you. Um, I'm uh, Daniel Winkler. I'm a research director of UK and Changing Europe. I'd like to pick up on uh, some of the things that Shizoa and Lisa said in, in particular. Uh, is there not a more fundamental question about what kind of democracy uh, we have, which is about the nature of the demos, and particularly the demos in England? Now, both of you talked about England in the context of devolution, and there's a strong argument that England is an over-centralized country, but what about England as such, as a nation? There's a lot of talk about English nationalism around uh, debates uh, about Brexit, um, but very little evidence of any political leadership that is explicitly engaging with um, England and Englishness as such, and within the uh, structures of government of the UK, um, it's extraordinarily difficult, I think, to represent a unit as large as England on terms of parity with the, uh, with the other parts of the UK. So do you have thoughts about England and the English as a demos? It is one of my sources of extraordinary regret that uh, immediately after the referendum, uh, Sunda Katwala, uh, is it British Future? Yeah. Is it British Future? Uh, he set up a group uh, and we worked on uh, proposals for EU citizens. We actually at the time worked with the Home Office to deliver something which would peg the process. Even we, we went as detailed as saying we would peg it at a cost of the application of a new passport. Uh, we recommended it to the Prime Minister with the suggestion of saying she should open negotiation by saying, as setting the scene, this is what we will guarantee for, British, for, for EU citizens in the United Kingdom, and we have the expectation that you will treat our citizens the same. Sadly, that was not done, uh, and it, it still grieves me to this day that, that it's, it's become because this is quite different from in haggling over tariffs. Uh, so I think they've got as much as, as someone who came here 
at the time of the last first referendum on the EU, carrying a green passport from the Federal Republic of West Germany. Uh, you know, I know what it feels like, and I think this is something we definitely got wrong. But can I talk about English demos? I was saying to someone the other day, why is it okay to be Scottish? Why is it trendy to be Scottish, but it's not trendy to be English? And he says, well, and if you're Scottish, you can go to Glasgow and feel trendy and smart, and not go to Edinburgh, and you could, you've got an intellectual place where you, you are. He said, if you're English, you can't go to London. I mean, London is in England in, the, in that sense. And the closest you get to a place where England meets is the Chelsea Flagge and the Royal Horticulture Society. And there is, I think there is, there is a real problem of how you define, that is why, for example, in that bill, we, 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 we offer two solutions. You could do an English parliament, and then the role of Westminster, or you've got greater devolution. But the other bit of my brain goes and says, even in Germany, where you ended up with a federal structure, a, and, and a pretty well-functioning federal structure, but that didn't work until you'd broken up Prussia because Russia was disproportionately so much bigger than the other parts. So, so we, we do have a challenge, and that's why I think, we, we, but we need to start that conversation, because you're right. All I can tell you is the, the, the solutions we're offering at the moment aren't working. Uh, and you, you have identified the problem, and I'm trying, you know, we're trying to offer some options in, in, in that bill, but we need to find an answer to that. It's very quickly take a couple more questions, just one sentence questions, please, and then we'll just wrap up. I know this lady is very keen, so, so please. Thank you. Alex Ronswick from Unlocked Democracy. I want to say a very quick thank you to Lisa for her speech, which helps restore my faith. Um, but uh, I'd like to see a deliberative process which um, leads to a citizen-led constitutional con convention and, and a new set of political rules for our political system. Um, but obviously, that's, Gisela has already indicated that's, that wouldn't be her priority. Given that, as the Hansard Society's uh, audit shows, 63% of people uh, think that Britain's system of government is rigged to the advantage of the rich and the powerful, what one reform would the panel introduce to challenge that perception? Do you think that uh, every form of Brexit besides no deal has at this point been stripped of legitimacy by the debate? Yes. Is this on? Anyway, um, there's a lot of talk about citizen councils, citizen juries, but an important difference, an important loss which I think has been deliberately glossed over, is to have anonymity. Because you can be victimised for speaking out at a jury. A, a criminal jury is always behind closed doors. Now, a recent example of that was in Birmingham, where the mothers who stood up against the schools in Birmingham have been barred from the schools themselves. So what was the loss of anonymity does that invalidate your exercise before it's even started? Very good. Um, just quickly, if we were to wrap up, uh, a reform, one reform in the Constitution you have. 
let's say, more experiments with Citizens' Assemblies for now. Um, and I would say, this, on the Citizens' Assemblies, I'm in part responding to the man over there who says that um, his Parliament's self-harming. In some respects, I think there is, there is some truth in that. Because Citizens' Assemblies not only contain different kinds of people uh, to Parliament, they also make decisions in different kinds of ways. And one of the biggest disappointments, I think, of the past few months has been the, the unimaginative way in which the indicative votes will run. Because the way in which you encourage people to, oops, the way in which you encourage people to compromise on citizens' assemblies is to actually force them to face the trade-offs and to choose what they would if their first choice wasn't available. Parliament has not done that to itself. That is a lack of imagination by parliamentarians, but primarily, I would say, by government, actually, because government is largely responsible for setting the parliamentary agenda and determining the procedures. And if Theresa May had gone into this from the start with more of a determination to build a majority in parliament and to work across party lines and to accept that she was the leader of a minority government, parliament might not be in the kind of mess that it has got itself into. The one thing that we can do now. Get oh, well, not get out. The thing I want to sorry, I want to do a sort of Tony Benn and say that's not what your viewers want to hear, and what they want to hear is the following. Um, <laughs> hey, it's really dealing with the point about system rigged and how people perceive the system. Um, my response is not change the system; it's to challenge the basis on which people hold that view, because I think Parliament is its own worst enemy. There is no one to speak for Parliament. This is the problem. Uh, there is no entity that can represent Parliament. Parliament is two chambers, and each chamber is the sum of its parts. It's those individual members. So there's no one authorised. So Parliament is very much under threat, and, and MPs are adopting a bunker mentality, and they have really, since even more so since the expenses scandal. So that exacerbates the situation. There is no collective will to address the challenge. Until you do that, things are going to get worse. Lisa, just quickly on the gentleman's point there, anonymity on assembly, so they have to introduce anonymity for the one on um, abortion in Ireland for the, precisely those reasons. And then people were free to break anonymity if they wanted to. So some people, participants in that, have since spoken out. But they, they didn't feel that they could have a proper deliberative discussion with people free to make their own decisions unless they did that. So when we talked to the academics who'd run the one in Ireland, they said to us, you would have to do something similar around Brexit. Why? Because actually it goes to this gentleman's question about, you know, why won't Parliament just start telling the truth? Actually, I think the problem is the opposite, really. It used to be that Parliament wasn't really telling the truth. When I was first elected in 2010, you kind of, you know, it was quite frowned upon to just not you just do what your party told you to basically and keep your head down and see if you could climb the greasy pole that's gone that's completely broken apart in the last few years perhaps we've gone to, from one extreme to another but actually parliament is stacked full now of people telling the truth as they see it the problem is that too few of us are actually trying to show the leadership of reaching across to the other side and starting to hear what's coming back to us i mean i'm not unique in parliament in representing a constituency where people voted on both sides of the referendum, right? A third of my constituents voted Remain, and in recent months I've been more concerned about them than I am about anybody else, because I went to a public meeting the other day, and a woman got up and said she'd signed a petition for the people's vote, and then she said, I know it was wrong, I'm sorry, but I just felt we had to do something, because this is such a mess, and then she burst into tears in the middle of a public meeting. I suspect the same is true of people who voted Leave in heavily Remain constituencies. I think we've got a real problem, and that's why I've said from the very beginning 
beginning that I respect the result of the referendum, but my God, I want to live in a country where the 48% know that they have every bit as much a stake in the future of this country as anyone else. And finally, I would just say thank you for that. Really appreciate it. And I don't think that it's about challenging the perception that the rich and powerful have too much um, influence in this country. Actually, I think that is the reality. I think Brexit was all about power and agency, and that's why Take Back Control caught the mood in towns like mine, like no other slogan in my lifetime. And you have to let people back into the conversation with real power um, to, to shape the communities they live in, the future of themselves, their families, their lives, their towns. And for a long, long time, what they've seen is that disappearing um, out of reach and that settlement won't hold any more. And that, I suppose, just finally, is why I'm optimistic because this is a mess. There is no question about it. It's a mess. But that system had to break and what comes next is largely up to us and we've got to grab it and shape it and do something with it. Gisela, just in one sense, I want to just jump on the question. Is no deal now the only legitimate form of Brexit in the eyes of many of the public? And is that a big problem? No, they want us to leave, but just in case you cheer up too much, this is only the first step. It's just the withdrawal agreement. The, the really difficult one is now what's the relationship. But, but can't you say, if we get to a position that people feel it's all about power and their voice doesn't matter and is not respected, then the people will feel that only the, the power they have to is to say no. And if the only power you feel you've got to exercise is to object, you cannot reach consensus. Consensus requires consent. And that's the, the deadlock we've got to break. Wow. I'm really glad I came back on holiday. Uh, <laughs> thank you to the panel. Uh, thank you all as well. I think there's a very brief coffee break uh, coming up. And I invite you to thank our panel.